following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn it now to Psalm chapter 42. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Psalms. It's a series that we're going to be in over the summer months. And a while back, I ran across a video where two of my favorite figures, one from the music world and one from the vocational ministry world, came together. They met to discuss the importance of the Psalms in the life of the church and in the life of a Christian. This video starts with a clip from 2002 where Bono, the lead singer of U2, sends a message to Eugene Peterson, who is a Christian pastor and a Christian author, to thank him for his work in translating the message version of the scriptures. Bono thanked Mr. Peterson, he called him, for all his work and encouraged him to get some much-needed rest after that project was done. Well, after that, the video cuts to Eugene Peterson, who admits that he had never heard of Bono before. He had no clue who that was. Well, the video continues, and after getting to know some of U2's music, I think Bono sent Eugene Peterson some CDs. Peterson said he started to like Bono's music. And in an interview, Peterson says that he began to be quite pleased that Bono knew who he was. Well, Bono actually invited Eugene Peterson to come and spend some time with him on the road, Peterson and his wife, and they declined that invitation because Eugene Peterson was pushing a deadline and translating the Old Testament at the time, and he said he really didn't have time to meet Bono in person. Well, after hearing that story, one of Peterson's friends exclaimed, it's Bono for crying out loud, to which Peterson responded, it's Isaiah for crying out loud. Well, eventually in 2009, Peterson and his wife were hosted by Bono at a U2 concert in Dallas, where Peterson was introduced to what he called the mash pit for the first time. And they spent three hours over lunch that day discussing Christianity and the Old Testament prophets, and it began a relationship. Later in 2005, just before Peterson's death, a few years before, Bono and Peterson arrange a meeting in Montana at Peterson's beautiful home in the mountains there on Flathead Lake. And the topic of their meeting was the book of the Psalms. And they have a recorded conversation on the Psalms, which you can go and watch on YouTube this afternoon, about 22 minutes long. And they discuss the rich poetry and the metaphors and the artistry that is found in the Psalms. They discuss the importance of imagination in the life of a believer. And Bono reflects on how he appreciates what he calls the brutal honesty of the Psalms, where you can find joy and sorrow, confusion and anger honestly expressed. At another point, Peterson reflects on the importance of the Psalms and says, the Psalms are not pretty, they're not nice, but they're honest, which is very, very hard in our Christian culture. Well, our psalm this morning would be called an honest psalm. In this book of psalms, we find celebration psalms, we find thanksgiving psalms, we find penitential psalms. And this morning, Psalm 42 comes to us as a psalm of lament, a psalm of sadness and sorrow. This psalm models how to worship God in our sadness, how to worship Him even with our sadness. This psalm gives us words that we desperately need 
So let's read it now. You follow along as I read from Psalm chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. If you've ever encountered someone going through a difficult time in life, you know the pressure that you can often feel to bring words of comfort. The pressure that you can feel to make the person who has experienced the loss feel better and in some ways try to take away their pain. Maybe someone you know has recently lost a job. Maybe someone you know has recently been diagnosed with a disease or is going through relational tension, or maybe even has recently experienced the death of a loved one. And when we encounter situations like this, it's natural for us to want to try to comfort and try to make things better. And one ways, one of the ways that we are prone to do that is by empathizing with the person who's hurting by attempting to feel and experience their sadness with them. And it's not uncommon for us in an effort to comfort to say something like, I know how you feel. Or to look at someone and say, I've experienced the same thing in my life. I understand the struggle. And normally these encouragements that we give are motivated by a desire to help, to comfort, to empathize. But if you've ever been on the receiving end of one of those encouragements, you know how hollow they can sometimes sound. Maybe you know the person trying to encourage you has experienced something similar to what you're enduring, and you even appreciate the sentiment that they're trying to convey, but you also know the situation isn't exactly the same, with the same details at play. When we experience sad things in life, when we struggle with sorrow and disappointment, it's easy for us to feel alone, to think that no one knows how we feel. We can hear others say that they know how we're feeling, but it's not really true, we think. And I wonder if you've ever considered this, that we can treat God that way too. In the midst of life's sorrows and disappointments, it's easy to look at God and think, He doesn't understand what I'm experiencing. He doesn't know what I'm feeling. We trust God. We're a group of people who trust God to protect us, We trust God to forgive us. We even trust God to save us. But do we trust that God understands how we feel? 
Do you believe that God knows how you feel when you go through difficult times, when experiencing dark nights of the soul, so to speak? The Bible reminds us that God does understand how we feel. He's experienced the effects of sin and evil in this world himself. In fact, on this day of Pentecost, when we celebrate that God has come to live inside of our hearts, we can even more confidently say that he knows our struggles and disappointments because God the Spirit is intimately with us. He's alongside us as we experience our unique struggles and disappointments in this life. And this is a psalm that helps us see that God understands, that God is with us in our sorrow, that we can even worship God with our sadness. And as we work through this psalm and come to understand that God knows how we feel, we're going to look at it under three headings. First, we're going to look at what the psalmist is feeling. Then we're going to look at how the psalmist struggles. And last, we're going to look at the hope the psalmist arrives at. So feeling, struggle, hope. Feeling, struggle, hope. First, let's turn our attention to what the psalmist is feeling. Psalm was actually written by a group of people. You might notice that if you have your Bible open. A group of people known as the sons of Korah. And Korah was a part of the priestly branch, part of the Levitical order of God's people. The sons of Korah were those engaged in clergy work in the Old Testament. They were ministers. And there are 11 psalms attributed to the sons of Korah. And most believe that this group is the group that was in charge of worship at the temple. The music leaders for the Old Testament people of God in a sense. And while this psalm was written by a group, for sake of ease this morning, we're going to refer to them in the singular as the psalmist. Okay, And as we take a look at this psalm, we can start by asking, what was the psalmist feeling? And as you read through the psalm, it's fairly easy to see that the psalmist is feeling deep sorrow. In verse 3, we see that tears have been the psalmist's food day and night. At the very beginning of the psalm, the psalmist mentions that he is thirsting for God, yet he's left to drink his own tears. In other words, the psalmist can't stop crying. Sorrow has overtaken his life, and some of you know what that's like. Some of you know what it's like to have saturated your pillow before due to sadness and tears and sorrow. We move on and see in verse 5 that the psalmist is in turmoil and cast down. In verse 9, we see that the psalmist feels forgotten and is in deep mourning. Move on to verse 10 and we see that the psalmist feels his sadness in his bones. This is an honest psalm. It shows us what lament is supposed to look like. Lament is being honest. It's taking your longings and disappointments to God. Lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow before God's face. Lament is expressing feelings of sadness about us, sadness about others, sadness about this world and the circumstances that we often find ourselves in. And this psalm, along with other psalms of lament, invite us to be honest with God about our sorrow and our sadness. And that's an idea that's not widely accepted in some Christian circles, that we can be honest with God. From time to time, Rachel and I get the chance to walk with young couples through premarital counseling. And when we discuss the topic of communication, one of my favorite questions to ask is, what does it look like to fight in your relationship? What does conflict look like for you two? And it would be a major, major yellow flag 
if the couple responded by saying, we don't fight. We've never had any conflict. I mean, that would be concerning because it would reveal that there's no real relationship there. Because in this fallen world where there will always be disagreement and difference of opinion, there will always be some degree of healthy conflict between two people. And if we're not honest about our anger and our frustrations, then we don't have a relationship that's based on reality. And in this psalm, God is inviting us to a real relationship. God is inviting us to bring our disappointments and sadness and sorrow into his presence because he can handle it. But this can be hard because we often feel pressure to be happy in our Christian lives. There's even a cultural pressure that we feel that tells us to avoid sadness at all costs. And if we believe that, if we always try to put on a happy face, it'll wear us out. It'll make us feel even, it'll, it'll make us feel false guilt for when uh, we are sad and disappointed in life. Sometimes we can even be told that we don't have enough faith if we feel anger or sadness. But the Psalms, they relieve that pressure for us. And they remind us that we don't always have to be joyful and happy. There are times and seasons where we bring discontent into our prayers with God, where we're honest about how we feel when we look at our lives. When we look at this world, this Psalm invites us to be honest with God. Notice that one of the ways the Psalmist mourns in this Psalm is by asking why. Why? And it's actually a word and a question that you see throughout the Psalms. I don't know how many times it's used. It's used a ton. The question, why? Why cancer? Why unbelief? Why no protection for the unborn? Why so much hatred and violence in this world? We need to embrace the why and learn how to lament, learn how to bring our sadness and disappointment and questions to God. But we also have to remember that our relationship with God is not a relationship between equals. We are creatures and God is creator. And God doesn't owe us. He doesn't owe us his love. He doesn't owe us his grace. He doesn't owe us his care. He doesn't even owe us explanations for what we experience in this world. But he often graciously gives them. He graciously invites our concerns and cares and he extravagantly gives us his love but we're always called to keep in mind that this is a deep kindness. It's an extraordinary grace that God invites our lament and our questions. We might say it this way, that traditional spirituality says you should never question, while modern spirituality says that you should never stop questioning, but the Bible shows us that it's not either or, it's both and. We can express our lament and ask our questions all the while remembering who we're dealing with, dealing with the one who created us and continues to love us even though we don't deserve it. And this is such a comfort for us that we can bring all of our lives into God's presence. It's comforting because many of us here this morning are sad. Many of us are heartbroken. We carry heavy hearts this morning. And if you simply turn on the news, you'll see lots of sadness if you're not already there with what's happening around the world right now. And it's okay to have a heavy heart. In fact, those who follow Jesus are meant to be those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness and way of life. Jesus says so in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, when he describes who a Christian is, he describes them as blessed are those who mourn, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, you can't know God unless you are thirsty and hungry for him. You can't know God unless you mourn the sin that you find in yourself and in this world. So we see that the psalmist feels sadness and sorrow. And now let's turn and take a look at the internal struggle we find in the psalmist's heart. As we move through this psalm, we notice a gradual progression. And even the fact that it's a progression from sadness to hope and that it's gradual brings comfort. Because if you're like me, you want more than you currently have in your life. We all want to experience more peace and more joy and more hope in our lives. And this psalm lets us know that it's okay if that takes time. It's okay that that growth is gradual. We'll all continue to progress in the Christian life. No one arrives this side of heaven. And as the psalmist progresses in growth, one of the breakthroughs that you see that the psalmist experiences in the midst of his sorrow and disappointment is found by way of metaphor in verse 7. Verse 7, it says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, initially, that's a hard verse to understand. What's the psalmist saying in this verse? And it can be hard to understand why this verse provides so much comfort to the psalmist. What does he mean when he talks about these breakers and these waves that are going over him? Well, it's fairly clear that the psalmist is not talking about the waves of God's peace and God's comfort, but the waves of God's pain and sadness. The psalmist is using the image of being overwhelmed here. And we use the language too when we say things like, the pain or disappointment or struggle that I'm experiencing just seems to be coming in waves. But there's something the psalmist confesses that makes all the difference in this verse. Did you notice it? He recognizes that the waves and the breakers he's experiencing are actually from God. Notice, it's your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves that have gone over me. The psalmist is saying that God is in charge of the breakers and the waves that he's experiencing in life, and he seems to take comfort in the fact that God is in control of the sorrow and the disappointment. And we don't always like that idea. Often we'll try to get God off the hook by saying things like, God didn't cause my problems, he simply allowed it. And that might be the case sometimes, but I have a minister friend who hears that kind of explanation and calls it weak sauce. It's weak sauce. It's weak because why didn't God stop it if he could? And that's the kind of question the psalmist is dealing with. He was hearing this from those around him. They're saying, where is your God? Is your, if your God were here, then you wouldn't be experiencing such pain and sorrow. If your God were powerful and in control, he would stop the waves and the breakers. But the psalmist recognizes that the waves and the breakers themselves come from God's hand. And it's counterintuitively comforting. But it does force us to stop and ask a difficult question. One that we can't, one that we can't deal with in depth this morning, but can touch on at least. And the question is, if God is all-powerful and all-good, then why does he allow suffering? Why does he bring the waves and breakers into my life? If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why cancer? If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why do children walk away from the Lord? Why job loss? Why divorce? Why racism? Why abortion? Why addiction? Why does God allow these things to happen? 
Well, notice that the psalm doesn't answer that question. It doesn't answer the question of why. The psalmist is allowed to, even encouraged to ask, but the answer isn't clear. In other words, we often don't know what God is doing. We don't see the whole picture like he does. We don't have all the details at our disposal like he does, but we're still invited to ask and to plea. We can say, I don't know why I was diagnosed with cancer. I don't know why my spouse left me. I don't know why God would take my job from me, but I do know that God is wise, that God is good, that God cares for me, so I'm going to trust. There are all sorts of things we'll never understand this side of heaven. Corey Tinboom in her book, The Hiding Place, recounts a time when traveling with her father by train that she asked him a difficult question, one that she didn't understand and one that she wasn't yet old enough to understand at the time. She wasn't old enough to handle the answer to the question that she had for her father. And her father uses it as an opportunity to teach her. And this is how Corey Tinboom tells the story. He turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question But to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case from the rack over our heads and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey, he asked. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with the watches and spare parts he had purchased this morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. In the same way, Corey, with knowledge... Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you're older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. Corey continues and says, and I was satisfied. More than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions, but for now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. The psalmist was content to rest in the fact that the waves and the breakers were from God. He took comfort knowing that God is in charge of the waves and the breakers in life. And it's comforting because if you stop and think about it, it's more distressing if he's not in charge. If he's not in charge of the waves and the breakers in your life, that means that there's no real purpose for your pain. There's no real plan for your suffering in this world. No real plan for the disappointments that you experience. And so it's counterintuitively comforting that they're God's waves and God's breakers because it means that he can use those waves for our ultimate good. And that's the struggle we see play out through the words of this psalm. The psalmist can can say, both that God has brought the waves and that God is his salvation. He can say, he could express deep sorrow and say that his soul hopes in God at the same time. It's not either or, it's always both and. Life in a fallen world contains a lot of both ands for us as we follow Jesus. But there's hope. And we see the psalmist work his way to that hope in our psalm. He ends by saying, hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, how does the psalmist get to this settled hope we see by the end of our psalm? Well, as we've seen, he cries, he mourns, he's honest about what he sees and feels in his life and in this world. In other words, this hope doesn't come without facing reality. After all, we'd say that it is not Christ-like to suppress our emotion. Jesus, when you see him walk the planet, 
When you read about his life and ministry in the Gospels, you see that he experienced the full range of human emotion. He wept, he laughed, he got angry. So expressing lament is a way that we work toward hope. But beyond simply expressing his sorrow, we see the psalmist do something interesting in this psalm that can be instructive for us. We see him begin talking to himself. He's speaking words of truth to his soul. Did you notice that in the psalm? Look at verses 5 and verse 11, where we see the psalmist talking to himself, addressing his soul. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, giving his soul a pep talk. We see from this psalm that it can be healthy to talk to yourself. Oftentimes we see folks talking to themselves and we grow concerned. Might be good to see it around here a little bit more. Us talking to ourselves, we spend so much time in our lives listening to voices that bombard our soul, listening to the voices around us. And this psalm encourages us not just to listen, but to talk, to speak to our souls. One pastor says this psalm is inviting us to preach the gospel to our own hearts. Don't just listen to its panicky chatter. And it just makes me wonder if you were sitting across the table, maybe over lunch or coffee with someone that you at least kind of cared about, and they presented to you the problems that you have in your own life, how would you encourage them with the gospel? How would you encourage them with the hope of Jesus? It would be a great practice to turn around and pretend like we at least kind of care about ourselves and encourage our own souls in that way as well. To go to coffee or lunch with ourselves, so to speak. And as we do that, as we remind our souls of what is true and who God is, it can lead to hope. And that's where this psalm ends. We've got to constantly remind ourselves of who God is to talk to ourselves of what he's done in our lives, of what he promises to do in our lives in this world. And that's how we're led to hope. See, often we want answers to the questions of life's pain and sorrow. Why are relationships so hard? Why do marriages fall apart? Why can't I seem to change? Why do we have to experience sickness and death? And it can be frustrating sometimes that the Bible doesn't always come and give us particular answers to our particular questions, but it's important to realize we don't have all the answers. He doesn't give us all the answers when it comes to pain that we experience in life, but the Bible does tell us that we don't lament alone. We don't lament alone. As we lament, we do so knowing that God laments with us. We're called to lament knowing that God is one who shares our pain. Jesus is one who came and brought healing to this world through his wounds, through his disappointments and his sorrows. Isaiah in chapter 53 gives us a description of Jesus, and he tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus knew what lament was. And do you know what preposition is used most in the scriptures? What preposition is used over and over again to comfort God's people in the midst of difficulty and disappointment and sorrow? What's the preposition with? With. In fact, you could summarize the entire message of the Bible with three words. God with us. God with us. Earlier, we said that it can be frustrating when someone doesn't understand your pain. But we can never say that God doesn't understand because he came to be with us in the pain of this fallen world. 
Jesus waded into the pain to save us from sin and redeem our lives and to redeem the entire world. The cross was the saddest, most evil, most unjust event in history. And through that of saddest of events, God was bringing life and renewal to the whole world. And if God can bring good out of that, he can bring good out of anything. Even when you don't see it, even when you don't understand it. We have an anchor for our faith in the middle of history. A symbol that shows us just how much God loves us. A sign that assures us that God can bring goodness and beauty and life out of tragedy and evil. The cross reminds us of God's good promises even when it's hard to see through our tears. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it when he said, when we can't trace God's hand, we must trace his heart. I'll close with this, and I've used this before a few years back, but there's a part in the Chronicles of Narnia. And the magician's nephew, where one of the main characters is named Diggory, and he's sent on a mission to save Narnia, but he's about to lose his mother to sickness back at home. And he knew that Aslan, who represents Jesus in these stories, he's a Christ figure, had the power to heal his mother. And the story picks up with Aslan asking Diggory, Are you ready? Yes, said Diggory. He had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you'll promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could make bargains with. But when he had said yes, he thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes he had had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came up in his throat and tears in his eyes and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that'll cure my mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in the whole world. For the orange face of the lion was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. God is with us in our pain and our sadness. He feels our disappointment and our sorrow more deeply than we ever will. After all, it drove him to the cross. And God invites us this morning to bring our sorrow and lament to him as we journey through this fallen world with hope in who he is and what he promises to do. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have given us hope in the midst of this sad world, for the way that you are presently in control of all things. And we pray that you would help us to believe that. Even in the midst of our sadness and disappointment, we pray that we would be able to be sad while still believing that you are good and in control. And we pray that this would bring you honor and glory and that this would bring us comfort and peace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.